All right. I'm talking today with Leah Stokes. Leah is uh, an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at the, uh, at the University of California at Santa Barbara and also with the Bren School of Management there. Sorry, Bren School of Environmental Science and Management there. Mm -hmm. uh, Leah's uh, work uh, involves public policy and, the, uh, and energy and the green transition, and we're going to talk about a lot of the elements of that work in a minute. Leah uh, has a PhD in public policy from the Department of Urban Studies and Planning at MIT. You also have uh, master's degrees from MIT and Columbia in political science and environmental science and policy, respectively. So, Leah, thanks for sitting down to talk to us. Great. Thanks so much for having me. So, um, we want to talk, I'm going to link several of your papers here, um, uh, but I want to start by talking about the paper in business and politics uh, last year uh, called The Political Logics of Clean Energy Transitions. And uh, what I like, one of the things I like about this paper is it, it lays out a framework for thinking about green transitions or at least transitions that involve increasing penetrations of clean energy technology. So it's about technological transitions and it, it goes beyond the sort of usual economic frame we think of for technology transitions and adds uh, a political sort of an interest group politics dimension to all this. So I thought what we could do uh, is start by having you just sort of give us a brief description of how you see that framework for thinking about these transitions. Yeah, so a lot of the emphasis in existing research on the transition to clean energy or, you know, dealing with climate change in general tends to come from a technology or economic perspective. And what we uh, did in this paper and in general, um, myself and my co-authors do in our work is think about the political and policy drivers of those transitions. You know, in order to get the price signals right or the technology in place, you really need policy in place. And in order to get the policy, you need uh, to work the politics. And so when we think about uh, innovation or technology uh, deployment, we often kind of just think about the economics and technology, when really these things are driven by laws and regulations and, and political actors making decisions. And so what we argue is that um, in early stage technologies, uh, you can often get kind of small policies in place that incentivize new uh, things, new entrants that otherwise don't exist. And uh, those things often kind of fly under the radar, a concept that I call the fog of enactment when people don't really understand what they're agreeing to. And in those early stages, you know, incumbent technologies, in this case, fossil fuel technologies, uh, the people who own and profit off of those things tend not to pay too much attention to the new entrants. But that as those new entrants, technology become uh, less expensive and start to move down the innovation curve, uh, that's when you start to get more political contestation, more fighting between advocates and opponents, because suddenly these small technologies that people didn't really think were going to threaten the status quo, the established way of doing things, they start to pick up steam and they start to really threaten the existing uh, technological and economic order. And uh, it's only after you push through that contestation that you start to get down to the really cheapest 
technologies uh, being more cheap than the existing uh, status quo technologies. And in those cases, in things like wind and solar, at that point in time, the barriers are no longer about uh, incumbents blocking you or about being really expensive. The barriers start to be about other sorts of technologies, system supporting technologies being ready to go. So that would be things like battery storage or uh, transmission lines, uh, technology to balance the grid overall. Um, so those are kinds of the, the arguments that we make in this paper that are sort of different than the arguments that you ought, would often see if you read an energy technology paper or read something from economics. Right, and that, that's the sort of nice, that's a nice description of the sweep of the argument. I want to come back to some of the some of the points a little bit later, but I want to start by sort of taking apart the first part of what you said and, and sort of unpacking it for people that are listening. Um, and when you talk about adding a political dimension or a policy dimension to these transitions, you, you make a distinction between the typical way economists conceive of, of technological transitions as essentially moving from a, a low quantity, high price or high cost beginnings down the, the innovation curve, as you call it, to a higher quantity and lower prices that arise because of economies of scale and other uh, other other factors. Um, and, you know, if you leave the politics out, you might get the sense that once you get to that low, or as you go down that curve, then the market just sort of pushes things along all by itself. And the story you're telling is that's not how it's happened, that there are different kinds of policies that that can arise or do arise at different points in that curve to push uh, the change along. Can you talk a little bit about the different kinds of policies that arise or can help at each of those stages? I found that part particularly interesting because I'm old enough to remember the beginnings of renewable energy policy and PERPA and, and the beginnings of tax credits and all those sorts of things. And so what I liked about your typology was that I could place all those historical events or policies into it. So could you say a little bit more about those sort of policy types? Yeah, totally. So, um, and I've, I've studied PERPA and sort of the early days of the renewable energy uh, industry in the 70s and 80s as well. Very interesting. Um, and, you know, I think that economists, uh, they sort of have a hammer, carbon tax, and they go around looking for nails. And um, the issue with that approach is that it doesn't work because that policy, uh, if you're in the status quo world where uh, incumbent fossil fuel companies are supplying most of the energy, they are big companies, they have a lot of political power, um, you know, to put a tax on them is going to be really difficult. And so what you actually need to be doing is nurturing new entrance, new technologies like wind and solar or even nuclear or things like that, carbon capture even, let's say. Um, you need to be providing subsidies, as economists would call them, or incentives, another way of saying it, for new technologies so that they can grow a little bit and begin to uh, get ready to be at a scale that they can start to do battle with the incumbent technologies and industries. Uh, because if you just start with doing a tax or increasing costs, uh, getting rid of fossil fuel subsidies, uh, what we've seen empirically is that it doesn't work because that industry is just so strong and you haven't really built up the alternative yet, both from a political perspective or an economic perspective or a technological perspective. And so you need to start first um, by 
do using things like renewable portfolio standards, mandates that say we're going to do a little bit of clean energy. You know, the first RPSs were small. They weren't about changing the entire system. And it's only as that industry begins to grow and we get to the middle part of the curve where the fight is starting to happen between the historic fossil fuel industry and the new entrants in the clean energy industry that we can start to think about removing fossil fuel subsidies or putting on carbon taxes, starting cap and trade programs. Um, that's definitely been the sequencing in a state like California. They started first with a uh, renewable portfolio standard, and then they started to move into a cap and trade program. And uh, over time, they've managed to increase the RPS and start to move that uh, cap and trade program to be more and more ambitious. So I think it's it's about thinking about what is politically viable given the scale of new entrants versus incumbent op- opponents over time and thinking about the policy uh, packages from a sequencing perspective that likely makes sense. Uh, you talk about the reactions of incumbent technologies, and you mentioned earlier that they're often politically powerful players. Sometimes the incumbents will resist in ways that point to public benefits. And I'm thinking, for example, of uh, – RTOs and utilities that make reliability claims about high penetrations of renewables. Mm-hmm. Often those claims are overstated, but they're not nothing, are they? I mean, so, sometimes at some level of penetration, we actually are going to have issues about cost and reliability. And so I was, I want, I wanted to get your sense of how you think about the the incumbents' arguments. Are they? How do we make a decision or make an evaluation of? Uh, when those are sort of make-weight arguments based on self-interest and when they actually invoke a, a, a real public value. Yeah, it's a difficult issue, and unfortunately the regulatory system we have, particularly at the state level with public utility commissions, is very ill-equipped to answer questions like that in a neutral way that are really about fact-finding and understanding with evidence, you know, what the situation is. Because a lot of what happens is that public utility commissions are uh, outsourcing uh, data gathering to utilities, and utilities are not value-neutral entities. They want to make profits. Um, they have built a business model over a 100 years uh, centered on large-scale fossil fuel plants and guaranteed profits from regulators, and they don't uh, – very, very few of them – have shown any evidence of wanting to move away from that model despite uh, climate instability. And so I really think that the um, processes that we have to answer questions like, are there levels at which um, renewables penetration poses reliability challenges, that those processes are, are weak from an institutional perspective and they probably need to be strengthened. Things like when you go through an integrated resource planning process, um, you know, who, who, where do the models come from that are used to, to argue that we need this much uh, extra capacity in terms of backup coal plants and things like that? Uh, you know, those, those models are often proprietary. You can't look at them. And utilities often end up uh, saying that they need to build out more fossil fuel plants than they actually do need to build out in hindsight. And that's because that's how they make money. And that's how they've made money for a long time. And so, I really feel that there is a need for critical thinking on the institutional side about how do we 
come to evidence? Uh, how do we do evidentiary hearings, for example, in PUC processes? How do we have more open access and public, uh, publicly viewable capacity planning models so that people can actually look at the guts behind the decisions that get made and be able to scrutinize them? Yeah, I wonder if regulators, in addition to sort of the normal information asymmetry that they face, I wonder if, you know, their their incentive structure is, is really uh, geared around keeping the lights on and worrying about the lights going off. I think of the California electricity crisis in your state and, the, you know, whether the prospect of Gray Davis losing his job mid midterm sort of lingers or hovers over PUC commissioners around the country when they worry about when they when they hear claims that there's a reliability threat and and they may lack the ability to independently you know evaluate those claims. It may be that they're just incentivized to worry about reliability more than anything else and and they that's where they really face the, the sort of highest level of job risk. Yeah, you know, um, PUCs were designed with certain goals in mind, uh, low cost and reliable power. And uh, since the 1970s, environmental goals have sort of been tacked on to a greater or lesser extent, depending on the specific PUC and the governance structure in that state and who's in office and what they're pushing. Um, but it really isn't a goal for PUCs that has been elevated to the same level as something like reliability and uh, cost. And, uh, you know, I think that what that does is it pushes the cost elsewhere. It doesn't eliminate the costs. I mean, you look at something like PG&E uh, starting the campfire in Paradise, California, and killing people, um, you know, that was both from a sort of operations and maintenance perspective, a huge uh, tragic disaster, but also from a climate perspective, you know, as we warm the planet, uh, we know that the research shows that two times as much land in the West has burned under, under a warming climate than would have otherwise. So the utility is both directly uh, increasing the risks of these things through O&M um, deferred maintenance and also indirectly through contributing to climate change. And by that not being centered in the way that we make decisions across the country and around the world. Yeah, and I think on this reliability balance or balancing reliability question, probably your state and my state are going to, you know, figure this out or have to figure this out one way or the other uh, soon, soon from for opposite reasons, right? In California, there's quite a top-down push to decarbonize, and in Texas, uh, at least if it isn't slowed down by the incumbent resistance processes that you outline in your paper, uh, we're going to have sort of rapid. Uh, penetration of both wind and solar to continuing at a, at, at, in, a, in, a, in a free market that doesn't pay the utilities to build extra capacity. Um, and so we're, you know, we're down to a, we're, we're way below our reserve margins, our target reserve margins here. We're one of the few places that it, it is. Yes, it will be interesting. I mean, it's it's notable that Texas has been free riding off of the efforts of other states in terms of uh, not investing in solar. I've done a long history of Texas's, um, you know, failure to enact. Well, no, they did enact failure to implement a solar energy target in that state. Um, and so, yeah, it sort of has delayed um, the investment in solar for over a decade and has kind of been free riding off the efforts of places like California who've really invested in solar to a much greater extent. So it will be very interesting to see how California and Texas uh, continue to develop in the future. So would other states have 
free and free riding off of Texas when it comes to wind? Um, that's an interesting question. I mean, Texas was a really important pioneer in uh, wind energy, and, you know, they had the resources for that. What's interesting is that Texas also has the highest capacity potential for solar in the country. Um, what's interesting, too, is that, uh, you know, Texas wasn't, I mean, if you start in the 1990s, Texas was, a, 1999, Texas was a leader on wind, but other states were leading on it before California um, yeah, I think the tech, I, I would say that Texas's policy of subsidizing transmission fits into your typology pretty nicely. That was essentially mm-hmm. a subsidy, mm-hmm. right? I mean, uh, that got wind going by building out the transmission lines before the plants were even there and having everybody pay for them. And um, Yeah, that's true. And and what's so amazing about that, for my argument on the fog of enactment thing, I've done, I've done a study of the CRES lines. Uh, it's in my book. And uh, they they squeak that through uh, the legislature by not being clear on how much it would cost. And it was only when it went to the Public Utility Commission that the cost became clear. And I literally have uh, fossil fuel lobbyists saying to me, if we had known it would have cost that much, we would have blocked it. So it's sort of an interesting example of regulators, I mean, of legislators sort of hiding the costs so that they get things through that end up costing more than people realized. Yeah, and I, maybe you're following this, but we're also seeing much more resistance from the fossil fuel side in the last in this last uh, legislative session than we've seen before. It might be too little, too late, um, <laughs> given how cheap everything is now. But um, Texas is a weird case, though, in the sense that never never was an RPS the driver of much of anything. Yet, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, the lack of barriers to entry on the generation side, plus the transmission lines, made it really plus the resource, as you say made it really attractive to build wind uh, out there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I do think we, we, do have, we have a lot of solar in the queue finally, and uh, it could grow quite rapidly if, if the transmission is available for it. Yep, everybody's been waiting for the solar to uh, uh, kick in, so we'll see if it does that one of these days in Texas. Yeah, let me ask you about another article, the one with uh, Warshaw, which is really about sort of popular attitudes toward um, renewables and the trade-offs between cost and sort of support for renewables. Um, there's a lot of support across the board for renewable energy. It's really popular. Uh, and what makes this paper interesting is that you look at the sort of sensitivity of that level of popularity to costs, or at least making costs salient, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you find um, that you you know that there is a sort of I guess support elasticity of cost. Is that a thing? Well, you know what I'm trying to say is there's a decline in support if you make, if you bring cost into the discussion. Um, or if you, yes. make, yeah, if people have to pay more for energy as a result. And, um, can you talk a little bit about what you think were the key findings in that, in that study? Yeah, so we ran a survey experiment with the public trying to understand support for clean energy. And what we found was that uh, there's a lot of sensitivity around costs um, uh, when it comes to paying more for electricity, that people don't have much ability to do that. And I think that speaks to the fact that income inequality and climate change are fundamentally linked as problems. And it speaks to the Green New Deal as one way of trying to get around that issue. When when people make so little money and when tax cuts have been going to the wealthy, it's hard for them to end up paying a few dollars extra a month. And so we see that in the survey data, that people don't really have a lot of ability to pay more for electricity. Um, 
what we do find is that air pollution, uh, highlighting the benefits from an air pollution perspective of clean energy is really important, particularly for Republicans. Uh, and you see that in Texas, for example. Their um, 1999 law was not just about clean energy, it was also about air pollution. Um, so I think for, for Republicans, clean air is still an important issue. Um, and we also found that uh, job creation really is an important thing to emphasize that that is something that people can get behind. And we found that if Republicans are champions of clean energy, that uh, Republican, uh, the Republican public will really listen to them and follow them. And so I think that speaks to the fact that we need to be cultivating on both sides of the aisle support for climate action and for clean energy, um, because otherwise we're going to continue to see the ace polarization where Republicans are pretty anti-climate action, climate deniers, um, and that, that's quite problematic. The idea that cost matters or out-of-pocket cost matters, I, I think, is a hard one as well. People are going to have to pay more, particularly poor people, for whom each dollar matters more. Um, that's a problem we have to address. Right? That's, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And not every state, my state in particular, but a lot of states are not that good at addressing that problem. Well, thanks so much for sitting down and talking with me today. Oh, my pleasure. It was great to do this.